Yeah, Nolan? an album T Wasabi 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 um not much man just uh just ready to talk a little bit of I mean you already took us to Canada once so I guess you're taking us there again eh you know it's always about the return visit anyway you know you go once and it's a great story but then you have to create more stories, right? So I am crossing the border again. If you're okay with it. Oh, goodness. Yes. Well, I love our friends to the North, especially, you know, you combine our friends to the North and then a trio. You and I always have had a soft spot for trios. So I'm excited to talk about a trio today. So we're not doing LL Cool J on this particular podcast. Is he from Canada? He's not. No, he's not. Oh, well, where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you. I will okay. tell you. All right. So we're not doing LL Cool J on this particular podcast, though, you know, may, maybe one day with all of his, you know, classics. But if you had to think of a quintessential LL Cool J line, like that one line in a song that maybe is one of the most quoted of all of his songs, what comes to your mind? Well, I always think of Rock the Bells. That's a good one. Uh, um, or I think of... Hmm. I'll give you a hint. He's making a, a demand. He's saying, he's telling us not to do something. Um, is he saying, I'm going to knock you out? <laughs> no, no, but you are in the right realm without question. Don't call it a comeback? Exactly. All right. Exactly. I said that the other day we were getting our, uh, our asses whooped in, um, in bags and it was like 18 to three and we came roaring back. And all I could say was don't call it a comeback. That's right. I know you've used that line before. Well, cause I'm losing often. <laughs> well, but you always come back. So tonight we're going to look at one of the great comebacks of all time in terms of comeback albums you know we've looked at a lot of different kind of different uh, classifications of albums informal classifications and tonight i think we look at one of the true great comeback albums of all time because our neighbors to the north they they weren't uh they weren't in the best way heading into the uh, early to mid 90s <laughs> they really weren't but they came back just like LL cool j we're gonna knock you out <laughs> And take this thing round and round. See, what albums have been suiting your fancy of late? Well, actually, I I don't have a lot to report on all three because they're, they're all three brand new. And I'm including them because I'm extremely excited to dig into them. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to utilize the uh, upcoming weekend to do so. Um, but the first one is, and really all three from bands that I 
really, really, you know, top tier type bands for me. So the first is called Reanimator and it's by a band I've mentioned on here a couple of times called Everything Everything. They're out of the UK and, and I definitely classify them into, you know, you made up Festival Rock, um, great designation. I, I've, uh, I think I coined a little bit of a spinoff to that, which I'm calling Prog Pop. And uh, everything, everything I think kind of fits into that very layered music. There are elements of festival rock, but very proggy, very thoughtful, very, you know, complex in a lot of ways. It's actually a band I think you'd really like, Nub. So their new album, Reanimator, I'm looking forward to digging into a bit. The second is one of our favorite bands that we've mentioned on here. And albeit, you know, it's a little bit of a different look now. The Secret Machines uh, with their two remaining members. Brandon Curtis and Josh Garza. Uh, thankfully for all of us, Secret Machines fans have some new music out there with Awake in the Brain Chamber. So still digging into that uh, as well. So really excited to get some new music, you know, from those guys. And it sounds so far like it's it's a little bit more um, sort of electronic uh, in its um, approach, which is interesting for them. So, but you still get that great, you know, backbeat big fat drum beat from Josh, which is always critical to their sound. And then the third is from uh, Mr. Marilyn Manson, a brand new album called We Are Chaos. And, you know, his records are always really interesting to me. There've been a few that I've loved over time and there've been a few that aren't so good as well. So it's always a little bit of a crapshoot with him as far as what you're going to get. But uh, looking forward to digging into We Are Chaos here in the next few days as I absorb some of these uh, new albums that are on my round and round this week. Do you think he goes by Mr. Marilyn Manson? Like, hey, Mr. Manson. I think he goes by Manson is my understanding is that that's okay. what he wants people or Brian uh, for those that, you know, go way back with him because oh, yeah. that's his original name. But Brian but Warner, under, I think. Under, yeah, that's exactly. Uh, what's round and round for you, Nub? You know, I, I, sometimes our episodes will send me into a direction for the following week. So after we talked Jane's Addiction last week, I dug up my copy of Trust No One, which is Dave Navarro's first and I believe only solo album, Ah. uh, which came out in 2001. It has one of my favorite songs of all time on it, uh, Hungry. And uh, it's cool. You know, Dave's got like a little bit more of like a deadpan vocal style, but the songwriting is really strong and the, uh, you know, obviously the guitar playing is excellent. So uh, pulled that one off the shelf and dug it a little bit. Just was inspired by our last episode. Uh, I've also been enjoying the Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, Birds of Fire, which is sort of considered their classic album. They're an incredibly beloved jazz fusion group that put out some key albums in the early to mid-70s, Birds of Fire being one of them. It's a real adventurous effort of all sorts of musical insanity. And then with all of those two, um, really been, uh, again, past episodes guiding it, continue with kind of a Pink Floyd obsession right now and have been listening to Wish You Were Here quite a bit, the album top to bottom. Yeah. Because that came up during our Animals episode, it, it kind of inspired me to go back and, and remember some of the elements of that album that I hadn't checked out in a while. And it's been a good rediscovery. So. That is what is round and round for me. Well, don't call it a comeback, but we're, tonight we're going to call it a comeback because Rush put out their 15th album in 1993. And uh, Rush was in kind of a bad way, T, if you think about it. 
right, really from the beginning of the 1990s until Counterparts was released, they put out, in my opinion, and I think a lot of Rush fans would agree, their two worst albums in Presto and Roll the Bones in 1990 and 1991, respectively. They were kind of in a bad way. The albums don't sound very good. They didn't strike any gold commercially. And they're not albums that I revisit a whole lot, whereas Counterparts seem to reset the whole idea of Rush for a new generation with a very fresh sound. But before we get into Counterparts, how do you, re- how do you reflect on the two albums that you know, came before Counterparts, Presto and Roll the Bones? And, and do you see Counterparts as a comeback for this group? I think Presto struggled. I think many, you know, would would probably agree with that. You don't typically, I don't know, you'd have to, you'd know this better than me. Are there any hardcore Rush fans that really love Presto? I don't really hear that a lot. It's kind of a, as we call it uh, here on our podcast, it's kind of a coffee shop take. Like if you want to be the cool guy in the coffee <laughs> shop, you might say, oh, Presto is in my top three. Uh, right, right. And, and I've always found that to just be a cheap way to gain Rush street cred. Right. More than the actual truth. Yeah. Roll, the, Roll the Bones at least had a couple of things on it that have really lasted. I mean, Dreamline is, you know, easily a favorite Rush song. But as albums, I, I think it's a hot take for people to say they really like them, but I, I haven't heard it a lot. Yeah, I think um, so. So I agree that Presto is a little bit of a struggle bus. Whereas, I mean, Roll the Bones, I think it starts off good to your point, Dreamline and title track and there's some decent stuff there in the front half and then it kind of kind of falls off a cliff a little bit there in the back half so yeah i don't think top to bottom neither of those records were necessarily the band's finest hour when you're a band that lasts decades you know and a lot of the bands we've talked about on our editions of the podcast are bands that are lasting you know and the story of rush is one that's become a little more heralded in recent years you know they put out that feature film which was fantastic, right? I mean, it's like one of the best rock band feature films I've seen. Great appearances by Sebastian Bach on that, uh, on that documentary. Every, every time they go to him for a soundbite, he just cracked me up. He's amazing, yeah. But what, my favorite line perhaps in the entire film is near the beginning when they're kind of introducing the main talking heads of the movie. And, and he talks about how he was like, you know, person number three of the Rush fan club of Toronto, Mother Truckers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's just the way he says mother truckers is like so amazingly sebastian bach well I and i love hearing guys like that like guys like sebastian bach talk about how rush got them to like read like niche and stuff you know <laughs> like things that they just probably never thought they were going to do that that was one of the great parts about that documentary is how the the, the somewhat interest and mostly confusion that a lot of neil Pert's uh, lyrics created, but, but interest nonetheless in where they came from. Yeah. And another great Bach line in the, in the film is when he says, call me crazy, but this band's really getting me into literature. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So the rush story at this point is pretty well documented and, and the band has gained a lot of respect just in the last 10 years. We'll get into more of this as we learn more about Rush and counterparts with those nerdy deets done. Dirt cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah! You want some dirty deeds? Counterparts was one of two significant albums released on October 19th, 1993. So to you and I walked in to repeat the beat in Plymouth, Michigan, 
Mm-hmm. And I think we both would have picked up uh, two albums that day, Russia's Counterparts and one other very, very significant release of 1993. If you even named the band, I would be impressed. And maybe you know the album, but without question, it's one of the top three albums of 93, if not the top one. Just throwing it out there totally in the dark. Uh, Siamese Dream? No, but that is a great guess. That's mm. a very good guess. I'd have to look up the, the date of that to see, but it is not Siamese Have we Dream. done it on the podcast yet? We have not done it. We have talked about this band quite a bit on the podcast. We've not done an album yet. Mm-hmm. Think '90s, you know, biggest album, biggest albums and bands of the '90s. Earl Jam versus you got it. All right, all right. Girl Jam versus was released on the same day as Rush's counterparts. Oh, okay, I'm sure that neither band figured that they would get in each other's way, and neither label figured that they would get in each other's way. And it's extraordinary how time has told sort of a different story. Rush and Pearl Jam have a lot more to do with each other in, you know, 2020 than they did in 1993, if for any other reason, kind of legendary bands that lasted decades. Of course, it features the just absolute legendary lineup of Geddy Lee on bass vocals and synthesizer, Alex Lifeson on all guitars, electric and acoustic, and of course, Neil Peart or Neil Pert, depending on which country you live in, on uh, what is listed yeah, how, as, how are you going to pronounce it today? I'm going to say Pert because it's easier, but I, I believe Peart is the correct way to say it. I think I'm just going to say Pert too, if that's I think okay. That's fine. We're going to make that agreement right now. So we're both on the, the, we're both on the Pert brigade here. So Neil Pert uh, listed as drums, cymbals, and electronic percussion. Typical Rush, not a lot of guest artists. They did bring in Michael Kamen to do the orchestration on Nobody's Hero, as we'll talk about when we get to that song, and a chap named John Webster, who just is credited with some additional keyboards. Peter Collins produced the album. He returned to Rush after working with them on two previous albums, which have very little to do with counterparts sonically. Collins produced Power Windows in 1985 and Hold Your Fire in 1987, most known for their use of synthesizers, whereas counterparts had very little synthesizer treatments in it. So Peter Collins came back to the band, and Alex Lifeson said it was kind of a perfect fit once again from the beginning. Collins had progressed as a producer, and the band has pro- had progressed as artists and really knew what they wanted. The art direction was done by longtime Rush collaborator Hugh Syme. Interesting trivia question about Hugh Syme. He's the dude that played synthesizers on the intro of 2112. So that, you know, really quintessential synthesizer part that opens the 2112 album, that is Hugh Syme playing those synthesizers, and he's the one who did the art direction and design or counterparts. And not to be confused with the other synthesizer artist, Hugh Jazz. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Who can forget Hugh Jazz? Hugh Jazz, yeah. Counterparts went gold in the United States, signifying sales of 500,000 copies or more. It was a hit for Rush. It did very well. Leave That Thing Alone, the instrumental song, was nominated for a Grammy Award. And uh, the first single, Stick It Out, actually hit number one on the Billboard charts for album rock tracks. So it was a comeback creatively. It was also a comeback commercially as um, an album that was much more successful than the previous two and a lot of the work that they did in the 1980s. Let's get into some of our Rush stories. Everybody's got a Rush story. I know you do too. So. Oh, Let's of, course. Hear, of course, right? Let's hear yours and dig into the wondrous stories. 
How'd you get into Rush? I would say partly because of you and partly because I we've talked about how we play a little music ourselves and how neither of us really have had many lessons. Um, but I, my first instrument was actually the bass. And I did take two bass lessons. Uh, th- that's my, you know, the extent of my formal training and instruction. I probably should have gotten more, but my bass teacher really loved Rush. And actually one of the reasons why I stopped taking lessons is because, you know, he was wanting to like teach me about the circle of fifths and about all these sort of like technique related things. And all I wanted to do is learn how to play like ACDC songs, you know? <laughs> so my second lesson, he put on a boom box and we listened to two songs back in black and we played along with it. And then um, the spirit of radio, which was a song that I was really liking at the time by rush. And um, we played along with that too. So he kind of showed me, you know, these are those bass parts since you're so interested in learning them. And I was like, well, shoot, I can do this myself. You know, so I basically stopped taking lessons and learned how to play the bass and future instruments just by playing along. And I think I'd mentioned previously on the old podcast here that The Wall and Led Zeppelin II were two albums that were really helpful for me in sort of playing along with. And obviously there were a lot more, but those are the two that spent the most time with at first. So uh, certainly, you know, developed an interest in Rush from uh, my bass teacher, but obviously you were my short-lived bass teacher, that is. But um, obviously you were into the band more extensively. And, and I think that that helped, you know, my continued interest. But it was a very gradual thing for me with Rush. You know, I I had Chronicles, which was that, you know, that double CD in that plastic case, you know, with the brown cover. Very iconic uh, collection from those guys. They really covered their career pretty well. It had some shorter versions of some, you know, some of their longer pieces. Um, which don't give you the full story, but at least give you kind of a taste. I think Chronicles is still a great starter set for those that are looking to sort of get into the band. And then on top of that, I I really distinctly remember the first time I saw them visually, um, which was actually on the show of hands um, VHS. I remember it was, uh, you know, uh, Getty Lee had the Steinberger going and, uh, I always call it the, you know, Rush's mullet phase, because at one point, all three of them had had mullets going sort of in that uh, mid 80s time period. But I was into it. It was the synth phase for Rush, which is probably my favorite phase, um, to be honest with you. So hold your fire and, and signals. That era is really, if I had to pick one kind of time period for them that I'm the most into, it would be that. And, the, and obviously on that tour, they were still covering a lot of that stuff. You know, you still were getting a lot of that. Um, you could tell that the band was really into kind of the synth phase at that time. So, and then on top of that, obviously, I, I think it's the band that other than Humphreys McGee, um, which is just an obnoxious number, I think it's the band that I've seen the most. You know, I, I believe it's 20 plus shows at this point. And obviously, unfortunately, with... Neil Peart's passing. I'm not sure if we'll be able to ever see him again, uh, even with a different drummer. It sounds like they don't want to go in that direction and perfectly understandable why. We had a great run of Rush shows all the way from this Counterparts tour, which I think was the first time we saw them uh, up until just a couple years ago. But interested to hear your wondrous story. I know this is a band that you dug into much, much harder than me, much earlier than I did. So Rush was a band that was definitely introduced 
to me by adults. And I say that because I was, you know, 11 or 12 or whatever. But I remember early on thinking Rush was like, a, you know, an old person's band. One of my earliest memories was our mom, who was very influential on us in terms of getting into cool music when we were younger. There was a time where our mom was like the coolest mom in the world. She took us to Woodstock 94 and, <laughs> and all sorts of crazy what, stuff. And what a saint. Things. I mean, literally piled us in the car, drove to Woodstock 94, hung out in the mud. And you're absolutely right. Uh, our mom, Betty, deserves a big shout out for our uh, musicality, certainly around this time. And Betty had this knack for like getting backstage, you know, she would always go up and schmooze like the <laughs> sound guy or something. This was but like, not in that kind of way. No, 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 no. Not in that Def Leppard kind no, of way. No, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, she would find these interesting ways to get backstage. And I, I know that the story is that she went and saw Rush on the Roll of Bones tour and she ended up somehow, and maybe this was through a radio station, but she would still schmooze her way sometimes. She found herself at a post-show gathering with rush at a bowling alley so i remember her coming home and saying hey i went and saw rush and i bowled with them or or they were bowling and i'm like what like you end up at a bowling alley with this rock band not exactly the rock and roll image that you have of a post show uh now yeah you know soiree you don't really typically think of everyone bowling exactly but uh i remember hearing that story and being like oh she went and saw rush she said they were really good musicians and that she went bowling with them. So that was a little inspirational. And then the, the, your bass teacher, who kind of became like a family friend and somebody that was around quite a bit, Rush was his favorite band. And so it was through this whole connection that, you know, we really got into them. I discovered some of the more mainstream elements closer to the heart, Tom Sawyer, Spirit of Radio. Plus, you got to remember, 101.1, The Riff in Detroit played a ton of Rush. You know, you've mentioned it before, Detroit Radio, essential in our discovery of some of the bands that we really love. So all of that combined to develop a, a real love for the group. And the, the Chronicle set, as you mentioned, was just vital. It was really important. It was sort of a best of and, and a great introduction to the scope and scale of the Rush catalog. So that led to an obsession that, you know, still lasts today. And I've never really left Rush at any time. They've put out some albums that I think were outstanding in the last 20 years, and they've put out a couple clunkers. But the one we're going to talk about right here is, is one that I hold up not only as one of my favorite Rush albums, but you know, probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And so let's call it a comeback and let's dig into Counterparts and drop that needle. Rightfully so, Counterparts begins with the drummer. All albums should start with the drummer, don't you think, T? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. In a song that you can tell the band really, really loves, the opening, Animate. Like I said, the band loves Animate. You know this because they've played it almost every tour since Counterparts came out. Yep. And Getty Lee and all the members of Rush have talked about 
that this was one of the most important songs in the album from a composition standpoint. When they came in to record Counterparts, they knew they wanted to get away from the Rupert Hines sound of Presto and Roll the Bones. And I love Rupert Hines as an artist. As a producer, though, he gave them a very thin sound and the guitars were not at the forefront, even though I think that was the intention. For Counterparts, they took this big, loud approach. I mean, the drums come in, they're really loud. The bass is maybe the loudest thing in the mix. And you get the vibe right off the bat that this is going to be a very robust kind of in-your-face rush sound for uh, the beginning of the sort of mid-90s. Rupert Hine, not to be confused with Rupert Holmes. Yes, well, yes. Yeah. Different dudes, different dudes. Yes, exactly, exactly. But uh, Animate has has never been a favorite of mine. I do respect its place in the album and uh, its place with the band, but I've never really loved it as the album opener. What do you think of Animate? I actually love it as the album opener. I, I think it's um, I think it's a great song. And to your point about live, oftentimes you think about Rush shows or you think about kind of your history seeing Rush. And honestly, you think about Animate because it is a song that you kind of always knew you were going to get. And honestly, I loved when they played it live. You know, particularly the last couple of minutes where everything just kind of builds it's, it, I think it's a pretty emotional uh, piece and, you know, coming out with a six minute song, it's certainly bold and you got an idea right from the get go here that on counterparts, you were going to see a little bit more of this verse chorus verse, more traditional structure from, from rush, which, you know, oftentimes they avoided, but I think part of based on what was going on in the nineties and to your point, trying to get on rock radio and those type of things. You know, certainly this this record more than any really captured Rush at their highest, you know, willingness to be uh, more traditionally structured as far as their song approach goes. And and you kind of get a sense for that right away with Animate. But I, I think it's, I'd have to say, one of the three best songs on this uh, album easily. And, and certainly for me, one of my uh, more top tier kind of favorite uh, Rush tunes. I, I do agree with you on the ending. The ending is epic and, and massive. Animate was the fourth of five singles to be released off Counterparts. Track two was the lead single and the one that introduced all listeners to this album, the very heavy Stick It Out. Great choice for a lead single. If the band created counterparts to send a message that they were going to have a much more driving, heavy sound, no better uh, lead to that than stick it out. I remember when I first heard this on the radio, I thought, wow, that's Rush. You know, that sounds more like, you know, the, the, it sounds more like Metallica or more like something that's more like the hard rock, almost metal genre. Agreed. I mean, in, in the dissonant chords and those things that are happening that, that, the great genius Alex Lifeson, easily my favorite guy in Rush, even though all three of them are amazing, is busting out here. Is really nice. I think it's a nice addition to a song and taking something that's pretty straightforward and you know putting that slight complication on it as far as some of those chord structures that you're getting. But you know, all in all, just a kind of a driving tune. Obviously, it it made a lot of sense to be that lead single. To your point, that counterparts kind of settles in. You know, one of the things we always talk about as we analyze albums is the sequence. And apparently the band really had a difficult time finalizing the sequence of counterparts. And they spent a lot of time 
with the songs mapped out. And apparently Alex had a technique where he assigned a certain, you know, label to the feel or mood of the song. And that's how they finalized the sequence. I think the album is, is sequenced pretty much perfectly. And always the song three tells you a lot about the sequence. Well, I would let, by the way, I would let Alex Lifeson sequence my album anytime. (laughs) Big fan. So track three continues this with Cut to the Chase. Yeah, they're just kind of ripping on this one. How about that bass, though, T? I mean, that that huge bass sound. I guess, you know, the advantage of a power trio being a power trio is that you can hear all the elements really in your face, but the bass really stands out here just for its power. Well, Gaddy's the man, obviously. And, you know, one of the things you hear on counterparts that's a little bit unique to Rush is this blatant guitar layering. I mean, typically they were really wanting to go straight forward with making sure that their layers are kind of true to what they could reproduce live. And sometimes it took, you know, Getty using his feet on synthesizers and all kind, you know, Neil hitting all kinds of crazy effects with his sticks. I mean, you know, they had to get clever at times as to how to do it, but typically you didn't hear, and we talked about it a little bit with Def Leppard, this dueling guitar kind of layer piece where you're getting a lot of different uh, effects from clearly two different parts. Rush typically didn't do that a lot, but cuts of the chase is very evident where you've got that high picking part and then that sort of more chugging rhythmic part. And, and I think that's part of more traditional radio friendly recording structure. I mean, frankly, bands had been doing that for a long time. And it's one of those things I think Rush always wanted to avoid, but certainly, uh, you know, counterparts kind of in this spirit of a band that's willing to take a more traditional radio friendly type step. Um, I think cut to the chase, mostly from a guitar standpoint, um, sets that up and you know, it's okay. It's kind of a song that I don't think really goes anywhere the way it should, but got a few moments where it kind of rips decently. Most significant part might be just the way the song title sort of describes the tone of this album, you know, yeah. track three and you're kind of already rolling. There's no nonsense and rush, you know, from time to time dabbled in a little musical nonsense <laughs> maybe every so often you know just a little bit just <laughs> a little bit so the focus of this album is i think what comes through by the time you get to the first three tracks but then you really get into something completely different with one of the other singles from the album and really something that rush had never done before in terms of almost a ballad like song that brings a lot of ideas to the table both musically and lyrically and that is the very emotional Nobody's Hero. So you and I not well documented, not huge lyric guys. But you do have to remember Neil Peart is the lyricist for Rush and a significant part of the whole Rush idea. And, you know, for years, Neil dabbled in parables and metaphors and similes and all the things that would make a college English professor proud. On this song, he's just sort of being very almost transparent about where he's at with the story of these people that clearly had some connection to him. And I remember that being very tangible. And in 1993, 
when your top bands are grunge bands who are just being almost downright humane in their lyrical approach and very straight up and very authentic. It was a good fit at the time for Neil to write something that could really connect with people. But what really boosts the song is the composition. And in my opinion, the Michael Kamen treatment of orchestra um, just takes the song to a whole different level. You're absolutely right. And I do, again, I'll, I'll file this under the description of Rush being about as trendy, quote unquote, as you'll ever see Rush be here on Counterparts. And that is this, um, this trend at the time, which was being quite lyrically literal and cutting through metaphoric clutter and cutting through, you know, and part of it was cool. Part of it was, was healthy. And sometimes it doesn't age that well, you know, but for better or for worse, you did see Neil really shift his approach to being more literal and more, as you previously said, just sort of cutting to the chase. Some liked it, some didn't. Nobody's Hero was a song that actually, you know, I mean, we're talking almost 30 years ago, yeah. um, created some controversy, you know, because of the, you know, story kind of early on. And, and, you know, Neil was always purposefully mysterious. But on this album, he gets about as literal as you you ever saw him get. And, and even after this, he kind of went back to more of his traditional lyrical approach. So I guess some people probably dug it. Some people didn't at the time or listen back and think that it sounds a little kind of goofy from Rush, where you don't typically get that uh, lyrical uh, directness. But, you know, on this one, I think it is a very interesting story. And to your point, it's over the top of a um, very beautiful, you know, composition. And for Rush, I mean, you mentioned it on Animate. When I heard this song on the radio, it was like, whoa, like these guys have really gone in a new direction because, you know, a four minute um, emotional ballad, essentially, that does tell a very literal story is not something you got from Rush really until Counterparts. So three of the first four songs were singles. They were all played on the, on the radio and, and like we mentioned with Animate, some of them have lasted a long time. Track five brings us to the should have been hit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and a song that I think would make both you and I's top five Rush songs. We didn't do yeah. a top five for this edition, but if we did, I think it would make both. Easily. And that is the jam between sun and moon. See what he loves so much about between sun and moon. Just the whole thing. I mean, the, the groove of it, you know, on its face, it's a, it's a riff that definitely allowed some creativity from Neil, but the fact that he puts the kind of groove on it that he does with those offbeat ride hits and, you know, it just is a really rush is great when they are able to combine sort of driving pulsating bass with groovy kind of hits from Neil and then power from Lifeson, um, which did I mention? I, I just love Alex Lifeson. I mean, I just, he's, I think he's just incredibly handsome and uh, <laughs> charming, charming. He's probably a great bowler. I'll have to ask Betty if how he, he was. Yeah. He had he good will. form. I bet he had great form. Um, just, uh, you know, his beautiful blonde hair. Um, <laughs> 
but no so um but yeah you're absolutely right this song is uh this is a, a rush highlight i think i saw them play it live once and it was a difficult song for them to play live and very very rare but uh yeah certainly a, a highlight probably well not probably it's certainly the best song on this record they dusted it off for i think it was the vapor trails tour it might have been um the one right after but it was right around that era and i loved that they played it it what it, it they didn't capture it live as well as the studio but it showed that they respect the song and they know that a lot of fans love the song which you and i prove i mean that this is a this is one of those rush album cuts that again should have been a hit oh yeah and uh reflects everything good about rush composition neil's playing is is melodic and powerful and uh, Getty's vocal on it, I think, is is just really a, a highlight. Really good. And they keep changing keys throughout. I mean, I think they play the chorus in four different keys during this song. And and lyric, uh, and vocally, um, that ain't easy. Rush specializes in not being easy. And I think that's a fair description for what continues on side two. So if you have the vinyl, which I do, this obscure copy of it imported from some other country, uh, Flip the side over and side two begins with Alien Shore. To me, one of the great choruses on the album, just the way the song lifts. Um, I love Alien Shore. This is one of those that would be in the top tier of, of, Songs that I, as I would rank them on counterparts, where does it fit in for you? Not a fan, you know, again, the, uh, the, the lyrics get a little literal for, um, you know, what I usually kind of like to, and, and again, as you said, not big lyric guys, but typically what I want out of lyrics, typically, unless I'm digging into them is to not notice them. You know, I want it to be like another instrument, another layer. And I think sometimes the literal nature of this, and obviously sex and these things are, are a very important theme of the album. And Neil's always got a theme. And it's very interesting to dig into the overall kind of story and thematic that was being told here on Counterparts. But, you know, yeah, Alien Shore isn't, isn't a favorite of mine. Um, you know, I think this was one that, you know, sounds just more pieced together than it does an actual song start to finish that had, you know, a lot of splendid direction. So not my fave. I think we'll both agree. Not my fave on track seven, the undisputed clunker of counterparts speed of love. This is the one song of the album that sounds like it was on Presto or Roll the Bones. You know, it's very thin. And uh, like you mentioned, Neil lyrically is always going after some theme. He describes it as duality. But really, this is an album about, you know, guys and chicks. The cover art is a metaphor. Remember when we saw them on this tour, they'd intro with the Alta Sparata from 2001 A Space Odyssey and the nut and the screw came together. And it's like, oh, I get what's going on here. I get, I get the metaphor. But the <laughs> album is, is very, you know, dude and chick heavy on lyrical themes. And Speed of Love might just be getting a little too cheesy for my taste. Agreed. I mean, I think it's, it's a song that if you're plowing through counterparts, um, you could easily flip. And that's never a good sign. It cannot be understated the importance 
of the band Primus to Rush during this time. Uh, the band members have said that the fact that they toured with Primus on the Roll the Bones tour was one of the most influential moments of the band's career because they learned from Primus kind of how to strip down and make things a little more raw, make things mm-hmm. a little more powerful. I think they had a good time with Primus. I think they're similar <laughs> bands and their senses of humor and and personalities. Primus and, was two, a, and not to mention two decent bass players. Yeah, so. not bad. You know, two guys that aren't bad. And drummers and guitarists, you know? I mean, you know, both. Well, I wouldn't say he's as good as Alex Lifeson. Um, (laughs) Who is really, you know, on this day. But uh, Primus played an incredibly important role. And I think you hear the Primus influence the most in the next two songs, for sure. Both contain a certain amount of musical adventurousness, starting with Double Agent. So you got the, you know, kind of the the shift in rhythm and heavy, smooth, loud. You got Getty doing the cool talking thing with the vocal effect. Rush is sort of unabashed here, right? There's there's sort of no rules when it comes to Double Agent. Yeah, this almost kind of sounds like the direction Rush went after Counterparts when you get into Vapor Trails and some of their later work, particularly that section with the China symbol and the really heavy riffing from uh, Getty and Alex. You know, it's it's okay. I do like the variation and in, in some of the um, dynamics that take place musically. The whole like talking, and I think that's Neil, isn't it, with a vocal effect? Uh, that's usually what they did. It's it, This one is Getty. Oh, it's Getty, okay. You're the, on Roll the Bones, Neil did the rap. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know, sometimes, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that was needed, you know, within Double Agent, but, you know, musically, there's some there's some good stuff going on. One of the jobs I've had in my career is I was an English teacher, and uh, I tried to incorporate music as much as I could into what I taught. I taught middle school English. One of the kind of weekly writing assignments we did is I called it sound off. And it was where I'd play an instrumental piece of music and the students would write what imagery it brought to them. And it was a very good writing, you know, exercise in terms of, you know, audio leading to thoughts, leading to words on paper. And that's cool, actually. Yeah. The students loved it. I mean, part of me wonders how they let you of all people like instruct America's youth, but you know, if you're doing stuff like that, maybe you weren't all that bad at it after all. Yeah, I had a few had a few tricks up my sleeve, but uh, <laughs> that's this, cool. This sound off thing was really cool. And one of the things I I did building up to my first year was I put together this whole slide presentation of the song, the artist, the album cover, and the year. And so we'd play this song maybe twice, and the students would write, and then we'd share out what they wrote. And one of my favorite ones during the year was the next song off Counterparts because of the, just the roller coaster ride that it takes listeners on. I remember my eighth grade students, a lot of them being introduced to Rush and discovering the band through uh, their experience in writing along to this particular song. And that song is the Grammy nominated Leave That Thing Alone. They may not have learned grammar that well, but they got introduced to Rush. Good That's for right. you, buddy. Good That's for right. you. That's right. listen to that guitar Mm, the tone the tone and most importantly the player 
I know somebody that dropped a, a hefty sum of cash on an Alex Lifeson signature guitar. I'm what? Trying to, who? Who trying was that? Of, trying to think about who it is. I can't. I can't recall. Just please don't say how much it was. I'm. I'll have to go jump off a bridge or something. <laughs> I'm mildly ashamed of the amount that was spent. But yes, I do have the Lifeson signature Les Paul in red. Um, so I got that going for me, which is nice. Is leave that thing alone, Rush, just reminding everybody that they're still a prog band and they can still do prog things? I think so. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to the record. And I didn't know until you mentioned it that it, it had gotten accoladed and nominated for a Grammy and that sort of thing, which is cool. And and they play this one great live, especially they, they typically play it when it's getting dark, you know, when the sun's going down, because typically they used to be an earlier starting band in an on-time band. They weren't really like pulling a Guns and Roses. You know, if, if the Rush show started at 7.30, pretty much at 7.31, they were out there. But I remember a lot of great versions of Leave That Thing Alone. Obviously, like most Rush instrumentals, it really features all of the band members, um, particularly Alex Lifeson. <laughs> yeah, this song takes a lot of twists and turns. It's, it's worth anybody checking out top to bottom, and you can see why, uh, why it's so beloved. And a lot of times, Neil would do his you know, infamous drum solo in the middle of Leave That Thing Alone. It's one of the few songs they would use where they'd start it, and then he'd play his you know, three-hour drum solo, and then the band would come back and finish it. You know my favorite thing about Alex Lifeson? I mean, in addition to being sort of a guitar god and musical genius, that whole sort of thing, there, there's this story about he and his son were out. I forget what they were doing. They were doing some kind of sport, like golf or something, some kind of like sporting event together. They actually got in a fist fight with another dad and his son. So it was like one of these father son brawl type things going on. And, uh, how great is that? What a great father son moment to just, you know, basically get in a brawl with another. And I'm sure the other father and son were being terrible. I, I guarantee you, Alex didn't start it uh, or, you know, it was probably just self-defense more than anything. But the fact that they like beat the crap out of another dad and son for, you know, probably some kind of appropriate reason, highly appropriate reason. Um, I always thought it was pretty cool. I gotta say. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think Confucius said that nothing bonds a father and son together more than a bench clearing brawl. I, I think that's, I think that's. We've yet to experience that with our dad. We we've yet to get in a <laughs> yeah. father son brawl with our dad. But maybe someday. Maybe someday. Maybe one can only hope. One of the five singles off of the album that uh, did really well on radio, but is not a song that has lasted in the band's catalog, and I have my theories on why. Cold Fire. Love Cold Fire. I uh, think it should have been a bigger hit. I think it'd be really hard to play live. You know, there's a lot going on. There's vocal harmonies, which never was really Rush's forte. Yep. Because I, I know how much you love Alex, but singing, eh. Well, I mean, I'm sure he could if he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You did not see uh, on this song in order to really capture that full effect. Uh, it's a great point. 
you'd almost have to have him sing along with a uh, dat, you know, type pre-recorded harmony, which I know I don't think Rush ever really was interested in doing. They did use some dat vocals live, um, and Alex would sort of pretend to sing. You know, he'd go up to the microphone and, and mouth. <laughs> no, it. that was him. That was actually yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. I think Cold Fire is a really complete rock song. It's very Rush, but it also sounds like something that fit right in with, you know, WRIF radio in the 90s in Detroit. It, it, to me, it's the quintessential counterpart song. It's, it's got great melody. It's got a sense of, you know, transitions and a sense of kind of, you don't really know what's next, but it also rolls along in a way that still retains some commerciality. I I agree. I love cold fire. I think it was produced perfectly. Right. And, you know, again, rush got a little trendy as far as vocal harmony, as far as a pretty straightforward rock song. And it was very radio friendly, but I think on this one, they really got it right. And the song holds up pretty good. You know, when you go back now, I mean, I loved it at the time. It was, and, and still really, really like it, but maybe doesn't hold up quite the same as like a between sun and moon, or, you know, maybe a couple of other uh, of Russia's songs that were around this time period, but cold fire is really good. And uh, obviously, you know, getting toward the end of the album here, a nice one to sort of tack on here toward the end. Counterparts comes to a, a rather dramatic finish with the song that I still in my head call Song 11. Because we went to high school, we had this, uh, we had a foreign exchange student that came in and she joined us on one of our class trips. And as part of this was to listen to Counterparts. Someone gave her a Walkman or something and she listened to it oh. and fell in love with Song 11. Was this Susie A? Yes, this is Susie oh, A. And I love Susie, Susie A, A. I know, we all did. And Susie A fell in love with Song 11, which is the closer on counterparts and definitely one of the high points. Everyday Glory. And Counterparts ends with uh, maybe the emotional high point of the album and song 11. See, what do you think of Everyday Glory? I think it's nice. You know, um, it's a little cliche-ish musically, right? I mean, it's, it's certainly not complicated in any way. And, and I think it's, uh, it's got good emotion to it and a very, I would say, appropriate closer to counterparts. You know, you, you, it would have been a little disingenuous for them to all of a sudden come out with some big, grand, more traditional rush closer or anything that's trying to do too much or be too thematic or any of those things. And I think, you know, I think all in all, it kind of does its job. I, I see it as much more of a monumental closer. I just think it's a very moving song. I think that Getty, again, delivers a great vocal. The piano parts, I think, are really important. You know, they didn't use a lot of synth and a lot of keyboards on this album, but when they did, it was really effective. And uh, I think they're just reaching really high on this song to end the album and, and brings it to a, a close with a, a ton of feeling from an album with a ton of feeling. I mean, this is not a sterile uh, check the box album like the previous two, where I think Counterparts really delivers Rush doing something really thoughtful and really sincere and also mm-hmm. just incredibly musical at the same time. All right, T. Well, we always put a bow on things here with a little segment called 
Does it matter? So T, does Russia's counterparts matter? I don't think a lot. Um, I mean, the band clearly does. And, you know, um, there are going to be plenty of moments throughout the catalog and even some of the later work that gave the band a certain trajectory and a certain direction and a certain history. And Counterparts, I think, fits into that in, in that you can really hear 90s in this album. And oftentimes when you go back and listen to Rush Records, you wouldn't know the difference if it was made in 1974 or in, you know, 2012, right? I mean, because a lot of the things remain the same and they weren't really hip to trends. You know, they kind of did their thing regardless. On Counterparts, you can really hear them being fairly hip to some trends. And that's okay. That's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a band who is able to be as complex as they were and accomplish what they did musically and be as adventurous as they were to be a little bit more stripped down and radio friendly and these type of things. There's certainly no reason to be hard on the band for doing it. But, you know, some people were into it. Some people weren't into it. I think if you're going to go back and revisit Rush or introduce people to Rush, as we talked about with the Chronicles set and some of the other things during the Wonder Stories, I think you're going to look in many, many places before you're going to look toward counterparts. How about for you, Nub? I think it matters because without counterparts, Rush doesn't last another two decades. I mean, they really were in a place where they needed this album to put them back on the map in some sort of mainstream way. The fact that it had five singles and a couple of them were hits was really significant. So that's important. You know, if you, if you think that Russia's work in the nineties and two thousands and 2010s is important, I think it all points back to counterparts. I think it was the turning point. And like LL said, you know, call it a comeback. Oh, wait, wait. He said, don't call it a comeback. Oh, don't. Right. Don't. We're going to call this a comeback, but it's their comeback effort. And I think any comeback effort for a band that's as important as Rush is would result in an album that's important, not just to Rush fans, but even to the mainstream. Because having bands like Rush around in the 90s and 2000s kept things a little real. It kept things a little old school. If you think about what happened in music in the 90s and 2000s, having Rush still around and relevant, uh, pretty damn important. All right, T, the final cut is Counterparts. On the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the dreaded for sale bin? T, where's counterparts for you? I think you make extremely valid and uh, and important points there as far as what this record did for the band in giving them that transition into the next period. Um, I do think that that, you know, was important to Rush. But I got to put this in the for sale bin, you know, and the biggest reason is it just doesn't hold up to me. It just, it didn't age well. You know, I put it in and I, you know, when you listen to signals and you listen to uh, moving pictures and you listen to, you know, even some of their more obscure type of work, you know, it, it just puts you in a rush place. You, you know, you're just in that rush headspace. When I put in counterparts, I felt like I was in 1994 more so than I was in a rush space. And I mean, there are moments on this album I love. I mean, Between Sun and Moon, Cold Fire, Animate, I mean, great, great tracks, you know, and not to take anything away from some of the important direction that the band took here and being able to put out singles. I mean, all, all those things are good. I don't think any of those things are were, were bad directionally. I just, I think if you're going to dig into Rush's catalog, you're going to go so many places before Counterparts 
uh, and the fact that it just didn't age as well for me over time. I got to toss this one in the for sale bin, unfortunately, but uh, does not take anything away from Rush as a band and their critical importance, as well as the absolutely critical nature of um, much of their other work. And of course, their guitar player, Alex Life. <laughs> yes, exactly. We need like a, we need a sound effect for when, when one of us puts something in the sale bin, like, you know, like a wah, wah. Yeah, I know. Like right. A, the price uh, is right. Yeah. Yeah. What's your final cut, Nub? So we're on polar opposites. Counterparts is on the turntable for me because it's, it's so complete in my opinion. It's got one duff track and, you know, you, you give an album a duff track. Uh, and that's Speed of Love. Outside of that, I hear a band pushing themselves. I hear adventure. I hear great melodies, strong hooks, and a band that knew what it wanted for its 15th album. You know, they went from the meandering of the past few into something just razor sharp focused. I think top to bottom, it's just really complete. It's excellent. And if you got to pass up one track as a, as what we would call a beer song, um, you can handle that for the the kind of brilliance that comes before and after it. I think it's got great bookends with the first couple tracks as the opener and the last couple tracks. And to me, counterparts is just an undisputed winner. So I love when we're polar opposites, man. I like it. I like it. Absolutely. You know, the, the, listen, the, uh, we don't have to always agree on the old podcast here. And uh, I think this is the first time we've been that far apart. Um, on our, Oh, actually, no, check your head. You put that in the for sale bin and I put it on. Yeah. I think it's the second time, but so, yeah, but, uh, but no, all listen, all very valid takes about a really, really great band. T let's, uh, finish things up with, uh, those songs that are ringing in our head with in your head. Ooh, Dolores. Dolores rapping. Yeah, yeah, Dolores really bringing the funk there, wasn't she? Bringing the heat. T, what's in your head? You mentioned Blinker the Star, a band I was delighted to hear you mention last week. And and one of my favorite songs from them is from one of their more recent records. And it's called Moonchild Got You Believin'. And uh, boy, Jordan is, and you know, when we talk about Blinker the Star, it's really Jordan Zardonsky who's really, you know, executing. It's basically a solo project. And he is an extremely talented guy and also from Canada. So, you know, this all ties together, right? But um, Blinger the Star has a fascinating catalog that I think is one of those that you can visit any time period. I mean, he's been doing this for, I think, like 20 years. So immediately wanted to go listen to after you mentioned them last week. The second is uh, Dave Matthews Band. The, the track is Dreams of Our Fathers. And this was off of the Everyday album which was the one that pr- was produced by Glenn Ballard. And, and, and this episode has all been about taking bands in totally different directions from a production commercial standpoint. Dave Matthews band working with Glenn Ballard obviously was a huge uh, departure for them and songs that were much more straightforward, much more layered and, and, and took them into a new production sense and dreams of our fathers. I actually think is one that captures that extremely well. One of my favorite DMB songs. And then the third is by Igloo and Hartley. One of these crazy bands that came out, uh, I believe Austin about a decade ago and was doing this, uh, sort of rap rock funk electronica festival rock type thing. And they put out some really interesting music. They were apparently just a 
bunch of wild, crazy dudes who eventually got in legal trouble and dissolved and all that. But a very interesting band that put out some interesting work. Their song, In This City, definitely a um, rap rock festival rock type anthem which is actually really cool and creative so in this city by igloo and hartley and that's what's been in my head what's been in your head nub the uh pandemic has uh led me to for once in a while i just got to hear like some of those inspirational kind of songs you know kind of the like almost like the rocky theme type of stuff you know just kind of an everything's going to be okay song. sure sure one of the best for me with that is what you give by tesla you know one of my favorite songs of that era Love Tesla, love what you give. Uh, the most recent Styx studio album was called Mission to Mars. It might be my favorite Styx album. It's just really, really outstanding. And Radio Silence is one of the lead tracks off of that. I've been enjoying that as I've been enjoying that album now for a couple of years. And a little ditty from uh, the 2000s, uh, Michelle Branch's Are You Happy Now? Hmm. I really like two Michelle Branch songs a ton. And are you happy now is one of them. She kind of rocks out on that. Is song. everything to me? The other one? No, no, that's not the oh. one. I, I heard that one just, uh, just a little bit too much. I think. What's the other one? It's, um, if you want to, I can, I can see. Yeah. I can take, take you, away you away from here. From here. I think it's called away from here. I don't, I don't. So lonely inside, so busy, busy out there. there. And all you wanted was somebody who cared. See, that's what it, it's called. All you wanted. There you go. You just all you wanted. wanted. Yeah. So that's what. And then the one I mentioned was because you're everything to me. Yeah. And when I close my eyes, it's you. A song that you would only like if Alex Lifeson played on it. Well, I, I mean, listen. He means everything to me. <laughs> See, you mean everything to me. Thanks for another great uh, oh, conversation here about Russia's counterparts. Follow us, subscribe to us, leave us feedback and make a request. Cause as you guys all know, we will honor your requests with future shows. T where can they follow us on Twitter? Well, nubs, uh, we are on Twitter on, uh, and very active just on the greater interwebs. Uh, but you can get us at the number two underscore twins underscore album and we will be uh tweeting or we're tweeting away i think it's fair to say friends and loved ones take care of yourselves and take care of each other and we'll see you soon on a future edition of two twins and an album two twins well that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.